welcome to the Board Shorts podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cook, and I'm here with another easy to digest dose of valuable board and company director related information designed to help you to get on board and thrive in the boardroom. Welcome to episode 55, where today I am having a rich conversation with Carolyn Mitchell. And I'm so glad that we've captured this conversation for you to listen to. Carolyn is an exceptionally experienced board member, having built a prolific board portfolio over the past 17 years. As a highly respected legal and governance expert, Carolyn currently chairs the boards of Credit Union SA, Netball SA, Tonkin Consulting Proprietary Limited, Can Do Group, Agrisano Holdings, and the Risk Management and Audit Committee within the Department of Human Services. In addition to that, Carolyn is Deputy Chair of LawGuard Investments and is a board member of Adelaide Symphony Orchestra and Justice Net South Australia Incorporated. And to round out this robust portfolio, Carolyn is an independent committee member of the Audit, Finance and Risk Committee at UniSA. And they're just Carolyn's current board positions. <laughs> she has a raft of previous directorships, of which I've placed in the show notes available on the Get On Board Australia website. With such a deep well of knowledge and experience to draw from, you can expect a wealth of information and learning that Carolyn shared in our conversation. We discussed such things as Carolyn's pathway to the boardroom and how she landed her first board roles, what she sees as the essential skills of great board members, how the boardroom has changed over the past 17 years, and what she sees the future of the boardroom looking like, how Carolyn integrates onto new boards quickly and effectively, and as you can imagine, she has gotten this down to a fine art over the years. We also talked about her biggest challenge in her board career and how she overcame it, and we rounded out with some advice that she would give to new and aspiring board members like yourselves. This is such a wonderful conversation with so much valuable information in there for current new and aspiring board members. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did having it. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, let's start at the beginning. Cast your mind back about what was your pathway to the boardroom? How I'm, I'm most interested, as many listeners are, about how you got your board roles as well. Okay. I, I think, like many directors, um, I became a director accidentally to start with. Uh, so I'm a lawyer by trade. And um, one of the things that I was doing in the early 2000s was... Um, providing pro bono free legal advice to not-for-profits mainly in the arts sector because that's my area of passion and of course when you do that you get to know the organization really well and you're asked to you know work on their constitution work on their governance frameworks those sorts of things um, and the, and 
and in the course of that, I had a couple of chairs say to me, wow, would you like to join our board? And I thought, oh yes, that sounds like a great idea. You know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, I know a little bit about governance and mm -hmm. corporate structures and what being a director means, but I'd never sat on a board before. So it was an enormously opportune time and great opportunity. Um, and I had a lot of fun, but yeah, mm -hmm. accidentally became a board member. Awesome. And then how did it evolve from there? Well, I've, I sat on two really lovely arts boards and realized that I both really enjoyed the work and I was quite good at it. So that led me to think um, that I'd like to do more. And I went and got some um, qualifications and let other people know that I was interested in mm. doing more and 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 offers came up and and different opportunities came up um, which I then took and and have gradually over that time built a portfolio and it gave me the opportunity to stop doing my my executive day job um, and focus more on this as it built up Mm -hmm. So how did you initially balance the career and being a lawyer is not exactly a nine to five job. <laughs> how did you balance that with a board career in parallel? Um, I, I paddled very fast, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, it was busy and I, and I'm the sort of person that likes to be busy, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But it, um, I had to be very careful because I, I couldn't overcommit, and it's still something I'm very conscious of because both exec role and non-executive roles require good time and headspace and and proper mm. commitment. Um, so yes, I. I paddled pretty hard for, for a couple of years there while I was running both in parallel um, and trying to figure out which of the, the two parallel lines I, I wanted to do more. So once it became clear to me that I was enjoying and, and having a lot more fulfilment from the board roles than the logic was, you drop the exec role and, and make your living being a director. Mm -hmm. It all sounds very smooth and fluid in hindsight, <laughs> but how, what sort of t length of time are we talking that this kind of evolved and then uh, transitioned into that sort of portfolio career? Yeah, quite a long time. So my first board roles were in about 2005. Um, I officially finished my exec role in 2009. Um, but at that point I didn't have enough board roles to pay the bills so I was doing some consulting work on the side and and I still do that now so that if I um, you know when a board role comes to an end uh, I can fall back into my consulting and it can be ramped up or down mm. as as much or as little as I need to make sure that you know I'm still financially viable um, but it probably took another three or four years. I'd say it was probably almost a 10 year journey wow. to be able to say that 
I was able to live off just paid board roles plus you know not-for-profits as well mm, that's a really long time <laughs> if you're right at the beginning thinking out from there yeah but and that's why I think um, my you know it, when I speak to people about taking that sort of journey is don't let go of your day job too quickly yeah or if you do make sure you've got some other form of um, income coming in because it's not easy to find paying board roles and it does take time and you do need to have built up that level of experience so that you're you know you're a good bet for someone wanting to pay for board yeah. positions and you mean board experience yeah yeah so I'm interested to understand um, you, you have a legal background obviously that's a very common skill set that's on demand on boards um, for obvious reasons although it, it makes me laugh sometimes when people say we want a lawyer and then you're like what kind of lawyer and people yeah. go oh there's different kinds yeah. <laughs> um, but that's just a side note um, so are you still attractive to boards because of your legal expertise at this stage or is it more because of your board experience, uh, especially in chair positions? How did how did that change and shift, and was it noticeable? And you know, do you still obviously help out, or I know you don't advise from the board, but give that legal perspective still? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question because. I've never ever thought of myself as being the lawyer on the board. Mm. The fact that I have a legal background gives me a certain framework for um, problem solving, for analysing facts and applying um, you know, decision making frameworks and those sorts of things. So it's a really good skill set in that respect. But I've never, um, never looked at being on a board as a, a legal job compliance risk management all of those sorts of things you get a good grounding in as a lawyer so you bring that lens and that um, approach to things to the board table um, I think initially uh, the fact that I had that legal background probably gave me a bit of a head start as a director mm -hmm. I, and I'm sure I've got some board roles because I had been a lawyer. But I think pretty quickly it was about board experience mm -hmm. and board expertise. Um, that was my calling card. Mm. Um, and you build up that, you know, you, you, you're exercising your governance muscles far more than your legal practitioner muscles. So one necessarily overtakes the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you really look into it, board service, it's not that sexy. <laughs> I mean, people make it out to be, if you look at some of the remuneration that people like on the board of Qantas mm. and some of the largest organizations, that makes it seem very sexy, very attractive. It carries a lot of risk though. As you know, once you start to scratch the surface, there's a lot of, um, chances for things to go wrong and it's on your shoulders so what value do you get personally from serving on a board oh wow 
I get enormous satisfaction from serving on a board. So the, the majority of my boards are um, in the, you know, people intensive industries. So, and, and businesses that are growing and businesses that are serving um, people. So I get a whole lot of benefits. One is that I can be an integral part of growing a business that's doing good things. I can be a part of a team that's growing and learning and um, working together, hopefully generally in the same direction, to do, you know, to do good things mm -hmm. and to, to serve a useful purpose in the world. As a lawyer, um, you're a bit of a grudge purchase and sometimes feel a little parasitic on other people's problems. As a director, yeah, we do a lot of problem solving. We mm -hmm. do a lot of, you know, pointy end issues management and the like. But on the whole, what you're there to do is to grow a business, lead and grow a business that's doing something useful in the world. And that's enormously satisfying. Mm, absolutely. It doesn't sound very governancey. When people think of boards and they think of what you do on a board as governance, what you just said then doesn't sound very governancey. So then, and I know that this is a loaded question because you and I have talked before, what is the essential skill that you see of a great board member? Mm. So the governancey bit, if you don't have it, it's very difficult to sustain growth of a business. So it's a necessary framework. It's necessary to have good and appropriate governance. So mm -hmm. my, my tiny little not-for-profit doesn't need the same governance as BHP, but it does need good governance and it needs purposeful and appropriate governance. Mm -hmm. But the, the greatest skill that a director can bring in my mind is common sense and passion. Mm. Um, so therefore, your legal accounting whatever qualifications are you know, relevant to an extent, but it's what you've done with those things. It's what attitude and approach you bring. You know, do you read your papers and think about what's in those papers? Um, do you bring a common sense problem solving attitude? Do you bring a combative attitude and I'm always right attitude? Probably one of the greatest skills that the director can bring to the table is a sense of humour mm -hmm. um, and that they take the role seriously but they don't take themselves seriously. It's really valuable. But I think common sense is the overriding most important thing. How do you measure that? If you're interviewing board candidates for your board, how do you get a sense of a person having this sort of pragmatic, common sense approach to things? You can quite often tell it just from their application and their CV mm -hmm. and how they talk about themselves. Um, and then it's, you know, it, it's not a behavioural 
um, interviewing process or technique, but some of those, you know, how have you managed this sort of situation in the past type questions, as long as you've got a reasonable bullshit detector, um, and as a lawyer that's something that I've in, um, have in spades, um, <laughs> the, yeah, to really try and test with someone how they would approach solving either a business problem or a personality problem at a board table generally can give you a, a bit of a, mm. um, a sense of their ability to bring common sense. Um, and yes, touch and feel and gut feel and instinct, not very scientific, but mm. you, yeah, you can tell. <laughs> you get a vibe. You get a vibe, indeed. In that case, it is the vibe. <laughs> It's imperative that boards and leadership teams can easily and quickly get a hold of the information they need and at the same time ensure the right people see the right information. Unparalleled security and data protection features like permission management and compliance flexibility give you confidence and control over your organisation's most sensitive data. See what this type of peace of mind looks like with Onboard by Passageways. Go to bit.ly forward slash OB security. That's bit.ly forward slash O for orange, B for Bob security. So I think on that note, what what's one of your biggest boardroom challenges that you've had and how did you overcome it? <clears throat> so boardroom challenges generally fall into two categories. One is that the business is in a precarious state and, and that needs management. And the other is around personalities or behaviours. Mm-hmm. They're equally as problematic and, and mean, yet they take very different... Um, things, you know, ways to manage them. So I've been on a couple of not-for-profits where we've had, you know, solvency issues, and you need to bring in experts and you need to take advice, and mm-hmm. it's very difficult, and a lot of people's, you know, livelihoods are on the line and the like. But that I can take a very pragmatic, lawyerly approach to. Mm-hmm. And you take advice and you work your way through that. The personality-driven or behaviour-driven issues are far more difficult to manage and, and to deal with properly and appropriately with everyone's dignity intact. Um, and and the difficult ones are either you've got a, a CEO who's not performing mm-hmm. or you have a board member who's not performing or whose behaviours are inappropriate. And with my chair hat on, they are some of the most difficult conversations Mm. that you ever have, Um, but you have to be really honest and and grown up. You put your big girl pants on and you have a proper grown up, honest conversation. Respectfully, um, and, you know, as I said, keeping everyone's dignity intact. 
but they are always difficult. The people aspects of any endeavour, you know, the quote, mm. soft end quote skills <laughs> are always the hardest yeah. piece. Um, and, you know, I'm not perfect and I haven't always done the perfect job with that and there will be, you know, some less than perfect ways that have been managed, but you, you do your best. Mm. And, it's, and they're always the trickiest. And I'm very fortunate. I have a, a number of really good colleagues with whom I know I can have a very highly confidential conversation and I reach out and use them as a bit of a sounding board. Um, and that's, I think, um, in, in director land, there's yeah. a good network in that respect because we all come across these problems from time to time. And having, you know, some, some friendly advice from people who you know, inevitably have been in the same situation is really valuable absolutely absolutely and it's so refreshing to hear that even after all of your years on boards and how experienced you are and some of the positions that you hold that you still seek help okay. and and um are open to that and i think that that's a really great attitude to have yeah none at any of us, stage none of us life. knows everything exactly um, and sometimes, you know, the old adage, a problem shared is a problem halved, is correct. That yeah. if you speak to someone about it and work through in your own mind what's the best way to approach something, it's like a weight is taken off your shoulders. It doesn't make the problem any easier, it doesn't make it go away, but you just feel better equipped yeah. to, to tackle it. And, yeah. You know, but, Finding good toolkits for ourselves and equipment to, to see through these issues is what it's all about. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but you did mention challenging conversations and I feel like what you touched on is that, that problematic board member, that anyone who's been on any board for any length of time knows exactly who that person is. Um, what I've noticed though is that so many people and this could be at any stage of your directorship career there seems to be this aversion to having what I see is candid conversations um, but I see a lot of people interpreting those kind of robust conversations candid conversations as conflict and so it's intensely avoided yeah. have you gone through that or, and and how do you how do you shift your viewpoint of those kind of conversations because I feel like they're so valuable when they're had that it it it, it makes me sad that people are, are not having these kind of conversations because they're such gateways to amazing things happening absolutely and I think you know the problematic board members or someone who's not performing appropriately or behaving appropriately can with with an honest conversation can become self-aware and change and you might not lose them as a board member mm -hmm. you might but you might not i've found that I, I i completely agree with what you've said it people are conflict averse they don't want to to bring to light or open up a conflict in my experience the more often you have the conversations, the more normal and usual you make them, the less confrontational they are. So if a board 
has a regular process of reviewing its own performance and its own behaviours. Um, and I'm saying really regular, you know, the end of every meeting, how did you think our meeting went? Um, very regular performance appraisals um, and open and honest conversations. Then there's, it, it's not a new thing. And when you raise a behaviour or a, a, a topic, it's not directed at that person. It's part of mm. our normal, natural process of discussion about how we think we're going. You know, I can remember the first time on a board we decided we wanted an in-camera session without the CEO. And, of course, the CEO went, had conniptions because... For obvious reasons, they thought that they were, you know, they were the subject of that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so by putting it on the agenda every meeting, I mean, the CEO still doesn't like it particularly, mm. but we do it all the time and we're not necessarily talking about them. We're talking about things that the board needs to discuss amongst itself before it is more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's the same. It's that normalising these conversations and as chair leading it by example where I can say something about my own performance or my own behaviours that perhaps was less than appropriate or perfect. Most of the time I'm perfect but sometimes <laughs> I slip. Um, but you know, normalising it and having the regular conversations takes the sting out of it. Yeah. It doesn't make some of the conversations any easier, but it takes the sting out of it. Yeah. And I feel like the more you practice having those conversations... Like anything, um, the better you get at them. Exactly. <laughs> and I even recommend that people do them at home. Like, learn how to have these kind of conversations with your partner, your kids, your other family members, because at least then it's a safe space and they might get upset with you for five minutes, but... yeah. Oh, and, you know, I have told members of my family I need to practice these conversations and so therefore, you know, I'm not having a shot at you, I just need to practice being really upfront about these things. So, you know, I think sometimes communicating your intent early is not a bad thing. Yes. <laughs> They're used to me now. They are. <laughs> just. <laughs> so, Carolyn, you've been on boards for over 17 years, uh, which is amazing. Many more years to come to in your youth. I was clearly a child prodigy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, what was the boardroom like back then? And then looking forward, how do you think the boardroom's going to be looking in the future? Mm. So, um, boardroom back then was full of paper. Right. Old blokes in suits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a number of boards I sat on in the early days, I was the only woman um, or, you know, by a, a significant minority um, and everything was paper, reams of paper, reams of paper reports um, and it was very formal. Mm. Even even in the sort of arts space, which, you know, is... is generally a bit less formal mm -hmm. because they decided to recruit lots of lawyers and accountants onto boards. <laughs> there was still an element of um, formality about them. That, so, and then over time it has changed significantly so that it is more diverse, mm. both gender, age, ethnicity, um, ways of thinking. 
Yes. Diversity of thinking has improved significantly. It's largely digital and it's got a formality, but it is far less formal. Mm. Um, you don't need to be trussed up in a suit to be bringing a good business head and a good yeah. decision-making mind to the board table. Um, so it is markedly different and it will become even more different. And what I'm now starting to see is conversations around age diversity and, mm. you know, should we be bringing on some younger people for a different viewpoint, albeit that they won't have either business or life experience, but we want to hear what they've got to say. So I think, you know, the, the diversity inclusion piece will will continue to evolve and improve mm. and that we will be getting a much broader range of views and ways of thinking at board tables, which will only lead to a richer um, decision-making process and better decisions, hopefully. Absolutely. Much stronger team. To yeah, yeah. And I think also many moons ago, the chair was um, allowed to be far more dictatorial. Mm. They were the boss of the board, whereas I don't think that's the case anymore. I think it's, you know, first amongst equal, it's a bit passe, but it's actually far more in evidence now. And it's a, a leadership role, but it's not a dictatorial leadership. It's a um, leading by service, leading by encouragement and example. Uh, yeah. Which I think makes for a more harmonious um, board table as well. Yeah, well, it's not the tail wagging the dog. Or it not be. <laughs> um, and I, as you were saying that, it just made me wonder whether those clauses in constitutions where it says the chair has the casting vote, um, how much that contributed to that kind of um, is it culture or hmm. attitude. Um, but there's still those constitutions out there that say that. They are. There are. There, significant number it does it I think it gave that sense of power mm. and attracted perhaps that sort of person to the chair role couldn't possibly comment um, <laughs> but I I chair a number of boards and a number of our constitutions have that and I have stated and it's minuted that I will not exercise a casting vote if I can't get a consensus decision I haven't done my job properly absolutely so I think there's been a large change of attitude about how that power should be invoked and used yeah um, I think it's a little different in you know privately held fat, you know small part um, organizations but in anything larger I don't think it's appropriate yeah absolutely for exactly the reason you said yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I would love to know, you're still starting on boards. Yes. <laughs> still building and transitioning your board portfolio. What is your process when you get onto a new board that helps you to embed yourself, really get a, a good lay of the land so that you can show up to a meeting, not feel like a shag on a rock and you know what they're talking about and you can contribute. What's that process that you go through? Okay, so there's all the due diligence you do before you decide you might want to 
go on the board. So you've already had a bit of a look at who's who else is around the table and who's on the management team and those sorts of things. So you're comfortable that they're a group that you know you can work mm. with and that you have um, you know respect for the work of the organisation. So I will hopefully have an induction process, although I recently <laughs> went onto a board where there was no induction process, which was slightly terrifying. Well, but item number one on the agenda. Yeah. <laughs> induction process, read as much, learn as much as you can about just the, the governance framework and those sorts of things. Then I, um, I corral the, the chair and other board members and the CEO and maybe CFO, depending on the type of organisation, to meet with me, I buy the coffee, and pick their brains, ask all the dumb questions that you yeah. don't want to ask in the board meeting. And sometimes I ask for things like a glossary because each industry has this, their own language mm -hmm. and acronyms. And you read the board paper and it could be Swahili because unless you know what the terms Absolutely. and the acronyms mean. So I quite often will ask for that. Um, and, and I'm quite a nosy person, which is why I like being on boards because I get to find out a lot about other people's businesses. Um, but I ask a lot of questions and um, I also maybe from my legal training, I write lots of notes mm. and I have um, yeah, sort of a bit of a, um, a dictionary of terms, a, a, a list of how the pieces of an organisation fit together, what the jigsaw looks like before I come to the first board meeting. Um, I try not to be too much of a shag on the rock but also I'm really mindful not to just weigh into things that I'm not fully aware of all the aspects of. So you're never going to be fully prepared but you just do your best to be as well prepared as you possibly can be. And then um, I, I like to use the first probably three to six months of being on a board to, to use the this might be a dumb question but mm. preface or I'm asking this from the point of view of complete ignorance. Mm. I have been astounded by the number of times when you come out of the board meeting and someone will say to me, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So my ignorance is maybe reflective of other people's question as well. So then you've got to remind yourself never to be afraid to ask what looks like the dumb question. Yeah, at any stage. At any stage. Absolutely. <laughs> but Absolutely. you do have you do have permission for dumb questions for, for the first little while and ask them. Don't die wondering. Don't make assumptions. Ask lots yeah. of questions. It's such a good opportunity yeah. not to be missed. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So you talked about getting to as part of your due diligence before getting onto a board, knowing who the board members are, knowing who the management team is. I'm curious. If you're on a board and some, it turns out that maybe one or, one or more of the other board members are a little, you know, ordinary on the edge, involved with some other stuff uh, that's not so great and get a bad reputation, get a bad rap for whatever reason, may not be associated with the same board that you share with them, but in a, another part of their life. 
same with management team they do something wrong maybe in the business or elsewhere how much do you think you as a board member on that board that you share with that person or part of that organization how much do you think that reflects on you um a lot. or could reflect <laughs> on you yeah as a um as a non-executive director your reputation is largely your calling card and i would like to protect my reputation as much as i possibly can i only will join boards where i think i can enhance its operations and it won't detrimentally affect me when it comes to light that there's something happening that might not be quite right um, and you're unable to alter that i think then you need to make the decision whether you're happy to stay on the board mm. um, and and i wouldn't stay on the board and i've had a couple of situations where um, i've had to stay to enable my a point or to achieve what they needed to achieve so if i'd had my own freedom i perhaps would have gone a little earlier but I, right. I stayed a little longer um and it was very very stressful and very uncomfortable mm. and i would not choose to do that again mm. so you know depending on the circumstances you have the candid conversation with the chair or whoever you need to have the candid conversation with and but no more publicly than that and then you tender your resignation yeah and it's always good to remind yourself as a board member you're not stuck there no you can leave anytime. anytime and i think and some advice that i was given very early which was incredibly valuable was never go onto a board a paying board because you need the money mm. because it's then very difficult to leave so hence i've always had my consulting in the background that if i needed to leave a board that was going to be okay i could still pay the mortgage i can finish that board and then i can ramp up my consulting again um, but where you feel that you can't leave a board because you're going to be financially vulnerable that's a very difficult situation to be in absolutely so where possible and it's not always possible but where possible if you can extricate yourself do yes absolutely it's not worth it no. um that was great advice of course it was great advice um but what advice would you like to pass on to the next generation of board members? Oh, wow. Where do I start? No, I think I can, I can honestly say that I thoroughly enjoy being a board member. And so I would encourage others to, to take it up but only do stuff that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine sitting on a board, sitting through board meetings and, and all the other aspects because it's very time consuming if I wasn't passionate about what the organisation does. You bring your skills, you, you know, you, all of that is a given, but if you're not passionate and engaged and, you know, 
wanting the success of this organisation, you ought not be there. Yeah. And that's particularly a not-for-profits where you're doing it for love, not money. If you're not passionate, you're not a cheerleader, you don't, you're yeah. not a fan, but if you're not passionately engaged in what the organisation does or stands for, then you ought not be there. Mm. But there's, you know, there's, it's, it's a great opportunity to do really interesting work with a interesting bunch of people in an organisation that you are desperately wanting it to succeed. That's a great recipe. Yeah, great advice. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you for being here today on the show and sharing a small view into your very extensive board career. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I thoroughly hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Carolyn. To be honest, I could have taken so many segues and tangents with her because of her wealth of experience. Um, so I feel like there's more that Carolyn and I could probably talk about and fill a whole range of podcast episodes. So hopefully we see her back here in the future. If you've got any questions or feedback on today's episode, you can reach out uh, via the Get On Board Australia website. Go to getonboardaustralia.com.au forward slash podcast and you can find me there. If you haven't already, I invite you to subscribe, rate and review the Board Shorts podcast on your favourite podcast app. And please feel free to share that you're listening and what your takeaways are from this episode on social media using the hashtag Board Shorts Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking with you in the next episode. The Board Shorts Podcast is powered by Get On Board Australia, the destination for aspiring and new board members helping you to get on board and thrive in the boardroom. And I'd also like to give a shout out to our local garbage collectors. It is Friday here in Adelaide and they are doing their rounds and I greatly appreciate them doing so, although I apologise for the background noise. I'll catch you in the next episode.